the September 20th, 2019 edition of Weekly Signals Meltdown, a reconfiguration of the last 168 hours of history broadcasting from Studio A at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And as always, the whistleblower who can't even whistle, Muller, the fake news dog. Coming up, you see fossil free, carbon sucking algae, <laughs> justice or just us. Ooh, yeah. That should be the name of a show or something. Bezos or Bezos? Is it Bezos I, or Bezos? I think it's Bezos. I Bezos? don't know. I don't care. But yeah, I think that's right. I really <laughs> I call him Bezos. I call him Bozos. Yeah. Bozos. <laughs> Bozos on testosterone and more. But first, what's the most massive thing you've ever seen, Mike? That's a such a great question, yeah. Nathan Callahan. <laughs> I really can't think of. Some, the sun? The sun. I've There's never well, I've looked at the sun, but it doesn't look so massive from My 90 biceps? million miles away. <laughs> There's got to be something on your mind. From Smithsonian Magazine, yeah. a recently discovered neutron star is almost too massive to exist. <laughs> it's massively massive. The star J0740 plus 6620 is 2.14 times the mass of our sun but just 12 miles in diameter. <laughs> Say that again. That, that's approaching the density of a black hole. Mm-hmm. It's like scrunching the sun into Stanton <laughs> here in Orange County. Yeah, yeah. For a long time, we thought that neutron stars could only be around 1.4 times the mass of the sun. This one's like over two times the mass of the sun. Thank goodness. A single sugar cube sized section of J0740 plus 6620 would weigh more than 100 million tons here on Earth. That's a sugar cube. <laughs> Talk about loaded dice. You know what I'm saying? If I had a little yeah, sugar like, cube you have two. and I yeah, throw yeah, this yeah, at you, yeah, yeah. you'd be crushed. California might be crushed. But how could I lift it? Neutron stars are one of the evolutionary endpoints for high mass stars. After they've spent most of their nuclear fuel near the end of their lives, the stars explode <laughs> in bright supernovas, leaving behind an ultra-dense core. If that core is a certain mass, it becomes a neutron star through the pressure of gravity. If it's beyond a certain mass, it will collapse into a black hole. Wow. But researchers aren't exactly sure where the dividing line is between a black hole and a neutron star. This study is a pretty big leap forward in terms of discovering more and more massive neutron stars and to use them as a kind of laboratory for space and astrophysical observations that we, of course, can't do on Earth. What's interesting is we don't know how gravity works. We understand the properties of gravity. We understand that a certain amount of mass creates a certain amount of gravity. Yeah. But we don't quite understand how it works. It's God. It's the it's God it's, sucking. So this all this stuff is just so remarkable. We look out into the stars and we see things that we can kind of understand, uh-huh. but we really don't. Yeah, <laughs> just like when I look into the eyes of Mahler, there are things that I can see, but I don't understand. Have you ever been to Italy or Turkey or Greece or Croatia? Mike? I've been to two of the four places you mentioned. Really? Yes. Let me guess: Italy mm-hmm. and Greece. Yes. 
From Forbes magazine, Greater Adria, a lost continent, has been mapped by geologists. Italy, Turkey, Greece, and Croatia, those four countries I named before, are where you can still step foot on the last traces of Greater Adria. It once was a string of islands that stretched from what is now the Alps all the way to Iran. Greater Adria was a section of continental crust the size of Greenland that separated from North Africa over two million years ago and plunged into the Earth's mantle under southern Europe. The top few kilometers of the lost continent can still be seen in the mountain ranges of southern Europe. The rest of the piece of continental plate, which was about 100 kilometers thick, plunged under southern Europe into the Earth's mantle, where we can still see traces of it with seismic waves up to a depth of 1,500 kilometers. It's down in there. It's down in the well, ground. The, I mean, there's been the mythology of the lost continent of Atlantis, yeah. right? It's uh-huh. been around forever. And yeah, Mahler. yeah I, I know Mahler. This is kind of it. This is kind of fits that description. It is in the area of Europe, uh, certainly around the area of the uh, the birth of this civilization. Uh, Africa side. Yeah, 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 it is definitely. It looks more like yeah. From the Intercept. Uh huh. While we may or may not be locked and loaded to go to war with Iran, a recent study revealed that the U.S. Department of Defense is the single biggest spewer of carbon dioxide in the world aside from whole nation states. That makes the U.S. Department of Defense the single largest non-state producer of greenhouse gases in the world. Right. And it's disproportionate to its size in that almost everything it does impacts the environment. We're getting to a lot of mass on this show. We really are. We're talking about big, big things yeah. today on, on Weekly Singles. Since the present era of American conflicts began with the invasion of Afghanistan in 2001, the U.S. military is estimated to have spewed 1.2 billion tons of carbon into the atmosphere. For a comparison, the entire annual carbon emissions of the United Kingdom is roughly 300 million tons. Most of the U.S. military spewing has been in wars that were ill-advised. In fact, sometimes we lost our Mo- status by going to the Right, and they wars. were also in areas of the world where there is a production of oil. It's kind of the stomach and the brain question. Stomach does brain. the brain exist for the stomach, or does the stomach exist for the brain? This is the reason we go to war in the Middle East, because the U.S. military is looking for a justification for its existence. And also, in order for it to be able to have access to the amounts of oil that it needs to exist. It's the old Ouroboros thing. Yeah. Where the snake's chewing on its tail there. Right. It really doesn't need to do this if it found another way out of this cycle. Right. And the U.S. military, somewhat to its credit, has been looking for alternative energy. With the occupation of Afghanistan, after 18 years... We may be close to cutting a peace deal with the Taliban, but a better peace deal could have happened back in 2001 yeah. when the Taliban had just about disbanded because yeah. it was getting beat up. Instead of being smart and concluding a deal then, declaring Afghanistan a victory, we ended up benefiting China out of this whole deal. That's right, because China now has, has access to the rare earth minerals in yeah. Afghanistan that they didn't have before. Meanwhile, the Taliban was revived. At least 110,000 people have been killed, and the environmental toll has been massive. In addition to spewing millions of tons of carbon dioxide, deforestation has accelerated, 
And through trash burning and other things, the U.S. armed forces spewed toxic pollutants into the air that caused chronic illnesses in not only Afghan civilians, but in our troops. Yes, that's right. The environmental havoc wreaked by the war in Iraq has been even worse. So we got Afghanistan bad, Iraq worse. Yeah. Not only did the war lead to a spike in carbon dioxide emissions, it resulted in the widespread poisoning of the Iraqi environment that has become so toxic that in some places it has led to elevated rates of cancer and crippling birth defects. Yes. Much of this impact can be blamed on the use of depleted uranium munitions by U.S. forces. It is the highest rate of genetic damage in any population ever studied. Depleted uranium, the value of that was that when you tipped bullets and bombs with depleted uranium, because it's such a hardened material, it can go through tanks, it can go through anything, and it's very effective. But when it does hit something, it gives off a fine powder of uranium into the environment. We wonder why much of the rest of the world has so much animosity towards the U.S. and the U.S. military. It's for this. When your grandmother dies, and maybe your son dies, and maybe your uncle is running around with one arm. And one of your babies is born with a birth defect. And you know it's because of an invasion or an occupation by U.S. troops. Right. And when somebody invades a country, that tends to galvanize the country, whether the whether they're right or wrong, around a bunch of people with guns. Whether they're good guys or they're not, people will rally around them in defense of their country. If this news sickens you, may I recommend a donation to KUCI to heal heal your aching soul. Just go to KUCI.org. Your generous donation is how we stay on air. Commercial free, free form, free speech radio at 88.9 FM, KUCI.org. From the Washington Post. You know that fake news place over there, the Washington Post? Yes. Good God. People do their best, and sometimes they make mistakes. Everybody. Yeah. Even our president. He makes mistakes. He won't admit them, though. The one thing he has admitted is he uses the word fake news just because he doesn't like what they're saying, not because it's wrong. That's right. In the meantime, though, he's causing all this animosity toward the press and fine publications like the Washington Post, who may be conservative, who we may not agree with in their editorial sections, but the reporting is spot on for the most part. It is. They do a great job. Yeah. From the Washington Post, Justice Brett McRapey Kavanaugh, you remember him. <laughs> yeah, and his penis made news again this week. <laughs> and I'm still upset about Neil Gorsuch stealing uh, Merrick Garland's seat. Oh, yeah. But history, to- history will not treat the Republican Party well if it exists 20 years from now, which I have some if, doubt yeah. as to whether or not it will actually be a viable, functioning political entity 20 years from now. But history will look back very unkindly on this era of Republican rule. Yeah. Now we have a right-wing Cro-Magnon Supreme Court. Yes, we do. (laughs) So it's not surprising that a new study concluded that even if Democrats win the White House and Congress, the Supreme Court will likely strike down anything sensible people do to address the climate crisis. Right. We also have a predominantly radical Catholic right-wing Supreme Court. What's up with that? They're radical. Yeah, but how come the Catholics are in there? That's a great question. I don't understand that.
At what point in time did presidents decide to just appoint Catholics to the Supreme Court? Yeah, I, I, it may have something to do with what school they're picking Supreme Court justices from. I don't know. Is Was, it because they're moralizing pricks? Yes. Is that what it is? Yes, yes. And okay. also, they're <laughs> educated moralizing pricks. Ah. And also, there's a moral certainty to their arguments. Uh, climate change legislation, the report concludes, is unlikely to survive judicial review at a time when leading scientists have concluded that only 12 years remain to avoid planetary climate change catastrophe. The study details the Cro-Magnon justices' history of restricting government agencies to interpret statutes. For example, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch have a history of hostility to Chevron deference, the idea that courts should defer to agencies like the EPA, their interpretation, the EPA's interpretation of statutes. So imagine that a Democratic president in Congress were to enact some sort of Green New Deal-oriented program that includes big investments in green energy technologies and new regulations on greenhouse gas emissions. The new court would rule that the EPA shouldn't interpret those rules at all. So who's going to interpret them? The Supreme Court. Right, right. This is just a power grab. This is a political ideology in search of judicial reasoning. They already have a political ideology of destroying the administrative state. They're anti-governance. And to make a lot of money in the process. And also they're pro-business. So they have, that's their objective. Now they have to figure out a way. They're not pro-business. They just want to make a lot of money. Yeah. They don't care about your business. Right. They don't care about Mm -hmm. a business 10 or 20 or 50 years from now. They care about making money. They're about powerful interests. And now they're trying to figure out a judicial underpinning in which they can hang their hat on. Powerful interests. They're about greedy bastards. Is that what you mean? Yes. The study also determines the conservative justices could invalidate climate legislation through a Cro-Magnon reading of the Fifth Amendment, prohibition against taking private property for public use without just compensation. There you go. Private property stuff really starts to bug me after a certain point. Yeah. I understand somebody wanting their own land to do what they want to with, but when what they do on that land destroys everything else around them, that ain't right. It's a radical interpretation of the Fifth Amendment, just like there's a radical interpretation of the Second Amendment. Yeah. The same thing. For example, the court might strike down legislation restricting oil drilling as an unconstitutional taking from a corporation engaged in oil drilling. Right. Another possibility is that the conservative justices might follow a newly emerging doctrine called regulatory takings. This doctrine says that not just eminent domain, but also certain regulatory acts as taking requiring compensation. Well, we're getting that in some of these treaties and some of these like NAFTA type treaties. The uh, regulation of NAFTA was to compensate companies for their projected profits, right? Exactly. What they might have made if we hadn't gotten in the way of regulating them in a environmental law or something like that. Yeah. Well, well, if, if it's harming people, it's it's almost like it's allowing them to commit a crime yes. and then paying them to do it. Yes. The bottom line subtext of the study is that in response to the climate crisis, the federal government is going to have to exercise its powers to a much greater degree. Right. In other words, we're going to have to kick ass once we get in power. At a time when we need more regulation, they are radicalizing the law. And you're right. When they're gone, we need to go in and 
undo it. It is going to take some time. Well, unfortunately, the Supreme Court's not going to disappear here. Right. These are guys are for life. For, yeah, yeah, that's they're right. For life, and a major collision between our side and the Cro-Magnon Court is inevitable. Yeah, and then what's so frustrating about all of this? It's based on the idea that corporations are people. A standing which does not hold up when you look at the history of the court case yeah. that established that. It was never intended to make corporations people in the way that it has been radically reinterpreted and what is the basis of all these things you're talking about. Well, I'll believe corporations are people when Texas executes one. <laughs> yeah. From the L.A. Times. Yes. The L.A. Times. Yes. University of California investments are going fossil-free. <laughs> That's right, Mother. Thank you, students. Thank you, all the people who demonstrated at the UC uh, Regent meetings. Fossil fuel, no more. No more. Jagdeep Singh Bashir, UC's chief investment officer and treasurer, and Richard Sherman, chairman of the UC Board of Regents Investments Committee, wrote a piece in the LA Times saying that their investment strategy for the university is based on the belief that fossil fuel investments present a financial risk. Let me underline that. Fossil fuel investments pose a financial risk. That's why they made the UC $13.4 billion endowment fossil-free. Amen. As, as of the end of this month, in September here. And that's why UC's $70 billion pension will also be fossil-free as well. Yeah. Cool. Tipping point. We are up rapidly and not soon enough in some ways reaching a tipping point of investment. That's going to move the ball forward more quickly than anything else. The reason we sold some $150 million in fossil fuel assets from our endowment was the reason we sell other assets, they said. They pose a long-term risk to generating strong returns for UC's diversified portfolios. That's just great. I like that one a lot. Thank you, students. Thank you. Proud. Yeah. Proud of you. Thank thank you, activists who did Uh that. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. Visit us at facebook.com slash KUCI 88.9 on our Tumblr blog at KUCIRadio.tumblr.com, on Twitter at KUCIFM, and also on Instagram at KUCIFM. Stream us live on TuneIn or go to KUCI.org. Yeah, from Inverse. Yes, from our good friends at Inverse. Uh, AI-focused technology firm Hypergiant. I, know, I love the name that's, of this That's company. what you don't want to run into <laughs> late at night. Late at night, a Hypergiant. Anyway, Hypergiant Industries announced a machine that uses algae to consume carbon dioxide. Algae itself, the company says, is one of nature's most efficient machines. By pairing it with a machine learning system, its developers hope to make algae's talents even more carbon effective. Algae seems to be the rising star for a lot of reasons. We're going to give an algae environment a brain to make it grow better. The team also claims the device, which measures three feet on each side and seven feet tall, it's kind of like an outhouse. It does look like can capture as much carbon as a whole <laughs> acre of trees, estimated somewhere around two tons. Algae is much more effective than trees at reducing carbon in the atmosphere and can be used to create carbon-negative fuels, plastics, textiles, food, fertilizer, and much more. Yeah. Algae needs three elements for growth, 
light water and carbon dioxide, which the machine monitors to maximize the amount of carbon capture by the algae. Yeah. Pretty cool. It is. When the algae consumes carbon dioxide, it produces biomass, which can be used in a number of applications, like making oils or cosmetics, or even for fuels. Yeah. Like you can hook your city up to this. Right. You mentioned what it looks like. It kind of looks like a voting booth. A voting booth. Yeah. If a very high-tech looking yeah. voting booth. Yeah. Yeah. Or an outhouse. <laughs> or an outhouse. Yeah. Or an outhouse. <laughs> From Vox. Vox. Yeah. Vox. Vox. The pro-Republican Electoral College. Uh. In close elections, Republicans are favored to win even when they lose the popular vote. In 2016, Trump won the presidency. You may recall that, Mike. I seem to recall vaguely that a nightmare from which I cannot wake up, yes. Won the presidency even though Hillary kicked his ass in the popular vote by three million. Yep. In 2000, George W. pulled off a similar trick. According to a new study, we have a pro-Republican electoral college. The study quantifies just how often the electoral college will produce an inversion. That's an election where one candidate wins the popular vote, but the other wins the presidency because of the Electoral College. In elections where one party wins by just two percentage points, inversions are expected in more than 30% of elections. That number rises to 40% in elections with a one percentage point margin, and Republicans are far more likely to benefit from inversion than Democrats. Republicans should be expected to win 65% of presidential contests where they narrowly lose the popular vote. Yes. Well, like a 1%. Yeah. Or, yeah. And a 3% margin favoring the Democrat, the study concludes, is associated with a 16% inversion probability. In other words, Republicans will win nearly one in six presidential races that they lose. By a lot. Yeah. At the extremes, the chart suggests that there is still a small chance of a Republican victory in elections where Democrats win the popular vote by about six points. Yeah. I believe in the last election, there were somewhere around 150 million votes cast. Now, I'm, my math isn't great, but I think that means you could win by up to nine million votes and still I think so. yeah. lose the election. Yeah. Democrats are disadvantaged because they have tended to win large states by large margins and lose them by small margins. In 2016, for example, Hillary won California by nearly 3.5 million votes. Meanwhile, she lost the crucial swing states of Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin by fewer than 80,000 votes combined. Yes. 80,000. 80,000. Three states. That's What is that, about one-third the size of Irvine? The election hinged on a population. Oh, you mean the population, yeah. One-third the size. Yeah. There's about 250,000 people here in Irvine. Yeah. It's not hard to imagine 2020 producing an even starker inversion. Historically, red states like Texas and Arizona are trending toward Democrats, but most likely not enough to flip those states in the next election. Right. If Democrats narrow Trump's margins in those states while Trump barely holds on to states like Florida or Wisconsin, the next Democratic candidate could win the popular vote by 5 million votes or more and still lose the election because of the pro-Republican Electoral College. And by the way, that doesn't take into account the gerrymandering that's been going on yeah. in Republican-controlled states throughout the country. In those states, Democrats have to get somewhere between 6 to 8 points greater in order to run at an 
evenly with the Republicans in, in some of those states. Yeah, Six Republicans states. are the cheaters. Yes. I say the Republicans don't want to play fair. That's right. Republicans want to screw you. All right. That's what this, Republicanism this, has turned into. Yeah, this is the party that tells you if you just work hard enough. Yeah, but you, meanwhile, what they're really saying is if you just screw your neighbor hard enough. Yeah, exactly. F those guys. You I know, know what I mean? It really is. So what's the end game here, right? When you're in control of everything and then what? Then what happens? I mean, what are they goading us to beat them down this way they're beating us down unfairly? Right. Exactly. I think one of the things that would freak out uh, the Republican Party is if one of the presidential candidates said, when we get in, we're going to do exactly the same thing you guys have done. Uh, This is not a good game to play. Here's a little feature I like to call justice or just us. Wow. Yeah. Hi, Jarrett. Hey, Jarrett. If you're listening, yeah. host of KUCI's The Dread Zone, yes. 6 to 8 on Mondays. But he's well known yeah, for well having known. hosted a show called Justice or Just Us. From The Guardian, a man from Alabama who was sentenced to life without parole after robbing a bakery of $50.75. Let me repeat that. Yeah. Life without parole after robbing a bakery of 50 bucks. He will be released after more than three decades in prison. Alvin Kennard, who was convicted of first-degree robbery when it was 22, was first imprisoned in 1983. Now, 36 years later, the 58-year-old is finally to be freed after a judge ordered his release from Donaldson Correctional Facility in Bessemer. Kennard was given the disproportionately harsh sentence under Alabama's old three-strikes law. He had previously been sentenced to three years probation for three counts of second-degree burglary in relation to one burglary in 1979. So the guy just stealing stuff. I know that's bad. I know he should go to prison. He should be punished. Well, he should be punished. Yeah, but life without parole? The fourth conviction for the bakery robbery, which was committed with a knife but involved no injuries. He just walked in there and threatened, said, give me your $50, meant he was sentenced to life without parole. Meanwhile, from the Huffington Post, news of actor Felicity Huffman's sentence for paying $15,000 to raise her daughter's SAT score and cheat her way into college, her daughter, to 14 days in prison last Friday. That's what she was sentenced to. It lit up social media when that happened with comparisons of a privileged rich actress sentenced to Crystal Mason sentence. Yes. And Mason's a Texas woman who faces five years in prison for casting a provisional ballot in 2016. That's what she's guilty of. Five years in prison for casting a provisional ballot. Yeah. Felicity Hoffman, the rich one, pleaded guilty to one count of conspiracy to commit mail fraud and honest services mail fraud. Two counts of mail fraud. And as I said, Huffman got 14 days and will also have to pay $30,000 and do 250 hours of community service. Now, $30,000 is a month's royalties from her husband's TV show. That's Bill Macy as her husband. And by the way, that's a guest star appearance on a sitcom for $30,000, right? This is not to bash Felicity Huffman. Yeah, it is. I mean, well, I I mean... She needs me as her agent. I'll explain later. No, I understand. Crystal Mason was convicted of illegal voting after casting a provisional ballot in 2016 while on supervised release from a federal felony. She says she didn't know she was ineligible to vote. That's understandable. And they didn't count her ballot. The ballot was rejected. But Tarrant County District Attorney Sharon Wilson, a Republican, still brought charges against Crystal Mason and successfully convinced a judge that Crystal Mason was guilty of illegal voting. 
When she was charged, Crystal had gone back to school. She had gotten a job, and she had pledged to her children that she'd never go back to prison again. So it was like she wanted to vote. She wanted to be part of the system again. This is part of the Republican mania to prove voter fraud. Yeah. They went after a woman of color who was out of prison trying to write her life. Yeah, she had done bad things in the past, but the whole idea of prison is to reform people. And a provisional ballot. So there was an understanding, in case it it is legal for me to vote, I want to vote. Because she was convicted while on federal supervised release, she was sent back to federal prison for several months last year. She lost her job, and the family nearly lost their home to foreclosure because all this happened. As I depend on others to help me stay afloat with my GoFundMe account now, I can't help but wonder if I had money, would this be a topic today, is what Crystal said. So if I'm Felicity Huffman's agent, I'd have her drop about fifteen or $30,000 to Crystal just to put it right and turn it into a little thing, you know? You're a hero. You're not a zero like you are now. You, you could become a hero, Felicity, if you're listening. Yes, if you are listening. For a small yes. charge. Yes, that's right. For 10%. Of, of $100,000. <laughs> I will work this deal for you. Yeah. I'm sure that anyone who comes in contact with the criminal justice system and jail is bound to become an activist for reform. Yeah. What's that, Mahler? Uh, what is it? Oh. Okay. He wants another Trump story. From the Baffler by Kim Kelly. The root cause of this week's United Auto Worker strike stretches back to 2007 when following a 73,000 strong two-day strike, GM workers swallowed a number of brutal concessions on wages and other important issues and agreed to go back to work to ensure the survival of General Motors, of their company. One year later, the economy crashed and General Motors was free-falling into bankruptcy. The government bailed them out to the tune of $50 billion. And yet layoffs have remained a regular occurrence ever since. So the employees stuck around and helped their company get through a tough time. And yet the company continues to lay them off. This year's UAW contract negotiations are critical to the future of U.S. manufacturing. Not only will the result affect about 158,000 workers, but it will also affect GM's investment plans for the next several years. On Sunday, September 15th, the negotiations between the UAW and GM, which has raked in hundreds of billions of dollars in revenue since the last contract was signed in 2015, broke down over disputes about wages, job security, health care, plant closures, and the status of temporary workers. Meanwhile, Trump's campaign promise to auto workers in Michigan, remember when he said that stuff? Yeah. If I'm elected, you won't lose one plant. You will have plants coming into this country. You're going to have jobs again. You won't lose one plant. I promise you that. <laughs> that's, that's what he said. Yeah. That's turned into a broken promise. Of course it is. There's been no new jobs. The jobs have decreased. And after GM profited from Trump's tax cuts for the rich scheme, instead of passing along the windfall to the workers who helped keep them afloat in 2008, GM moved production of the Chevy Blazer plant to Mexico. Mm -hmm. If a trend of strike actions in the manufacturing sector continues into the election cycle, it could deal a body blow to Trump, the most anti-union president in recent history. Oh, you like that one, huh, Molly? Right. 
Oof. I got a hit a Hilsick right here. <laughs> Lay it on me. Yeah. Yeah. From Michael Hilsick at the Los Angeles Times. Remember that recent pledge by nearly 200 major corporations to place their workers, customers, suppliers, and communities ahead of shareholders? Oh, yes. I do remember that. I cried well, a little when I heard that. Well, Jeff Bezos, Bezos, a signatory to the statement, stiffed his workers. Yeah. He signed that thing, and then he thought, uh, what's a signature? Yeah. His Whole Foods told employees working between 20 and 30 hours per week that they'll lose their access to the company health plan as of next year. The cost of their health plan amounts to what Bezos earns in six hours. Yeah. That's to give you an idea yeah. of the proportion here. He won't pay out six hours worth of what he makes to help ensure I don't think there's any his employees. I don't think there's any satiating the greedy. No. Look at Trump. There's no I'm fine yeah. moment for him. I'm okay. I can get through this. The one reason I think this Bozo's guy is a little bit wacky is I think he might be taking testosterone supplements. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. probably true. You seen him? Is he all buffed up? Oh, yeah, he looks like Mr. Clean. Is, oh, yeah. Is, yeah, he looks like Mr. Clean. Well, and he's going through a divorce, yeah. too. And she got $125 billion out of the deal. Yeah, but he's all puffed up. I know. He's all swole up. Like a say, goon. Yeah, like a goon. In fact, in, goon. from Palladium Magazine, competitive hormone supplementation is shaping America's future business titans. They all would have looked like... Testosterone supplementation is a booming business. Jeff Bezos is puffed up like a steroid queen in the (laughs) five years since founding Amazon. He used to look like the kind of dweeby guy. Now he looks more like Lyle Alzado. Yeah. Remember that? Well, good. Yeah. Because Alzado ended up up doing him in. Yeah. yeah. Bezos is growing Amazon at a testosterone-ish breakneck startup pace. Yeah. He's all amped up. And who can we buy today? Where can we choke off competition today? And he seems to treat the business like a trench war with anyone who sells anything to anyone. Is he using testosterone supplements? Probably. Can this continue? Not indefinitely. Eventually, high doses of testosterone lead to blood pressure problems and premature heart attacks. Oh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, That's that's the good news. And finally, in Bhopal, India, a pair of frogs who had been married two months ago to please Indra the god of rain, in an effort to alleviate drought, those two frogs yes. were officially divorced because of flood conditions and 26% higher than usual rainfall. You can subscribe to the Weekly Signals Weekly Review podcast at weeklysignals.com. Weeklysignals.com. Subscribe now.